Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon. Happy New Year again. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a new, an interesting way of looking at life in general and relationship in particular. You know, for the first time in the history of the world, we are really beginning to come to deeper understanding of relationship. For eons, it seems, marriages were arranged for good hips or good teeth or good dowries and good family backgrounds. It's only been within the past 150 years that we have begun to commit for love. And only within the past 50 to 70 years have we considered the possibility that we might not have to tolerate the intolerable or accept the unacceptable in relationship. But we are still on a wide learning curve and swinging a broad-based spectrum between what has come to be called codependency and a rejection of the slightest infringement. Our guest today is going to add quite a bit to our understanding, not only of her particular story of relationship, but of life and how to live it without suffering. Laura Munson's story is not meant to fit everyone, but it is definitely a transformative journey based totally on a crisis in her primary relationship and a decision to transcend suffering. In April of 2010, Laura published her memoir entitled This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, published by Amy Einhorn and Putnam, who also published the wildly best-selling book, The Help. This memoir is an international bestseller landing on the New York Times bestseller list in its first week of publication. The book featured and reviewed in numerous prestigious magazines, reviews, and newspapers across the world and was named one of Book of the Month Club's Best Books of the Year. Laura has appeared on numerous television and radio shows, including Good Morning America and many NPR stations. Her previous work has appeared in The New York Times, O Magazine, Woman's Day, The Huffington Post, The Sun, Big Sky Journal, and others. While the entry point to her memoir is a marital crisis, true to its title, it is not the book we think it's going to be. This is a book about empowerment, about living in the present moment, and committing to being responsible for your own happiness, no matter what's going on in your life. So, Laura, welcome to the Authentic Living Show. I'm so glad that we get to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrea. I'm so glad to be here. All right. Well, we're just going to sort of jump right in there and get heavy. Uh, (laughs) You know, I want to say that everyone's got an opinion these days about what you should and shouldn't put up with in a relationship, and everyone has also got an opinion about life and how it ought to be lived. All the opinions run a gamut of thinking ranging through the various polarities of thought, but your story is not one one of opinion but of experience. So can you just share just a, a, just a little bit about the story itself? I don't want you to tell the whole thing, but just a little bit about the story itself and how you came to your decision to not suffer. Well, about two years ago, my husband of at that point almost 20 years uh, came home one day in the summertime and announced that he no longer loved me, and he wasn't sure if he ever did, and he wanted to move out. And this was very surprising to me because this is a great man who I have been loved by for a long time. We met in college. We have two kids. We've built a wonderful life out here in Montana where I speak to you right now, and um, he's a wonderful family man, too. So I knew that something was going on, and I deeply felt that this was a crisis of his own self. And so rather than engaging in the drama and reacting, I went to a place of of quiet and calm and said to him, what can we do to give you the distance that you need without taking down all that we've built in all of these years? 
And he took me up on it. And there began this season. The subtitle of my book is A Season of Unlikely Happiness. There began this season where I got to practice what it was to live in the present moment and to really let go of, of engaging in, in the drama because, of course, those are incredibly hurtful words and words that none of us want to hear. Absolutely, absolutely. And most of us become quite reactive around that, but you were able to engage a deeper part of yourself. So had you been working with that sort of uh, ability prior to this? Yes, and and that's something that's so important for people to know. This wasn't just like a knee-jerk reaction. Um, Because I've been a writer and I've been writing um, voraciously for many years and have completed 14 (laughs) unpublished books, if you can believe that, Um, not 14 good ones, however, Um, but because I had been working so hard at this one thing and had been so single-minded and had wanted so dearly to have an audience and and write books that people would love and and that would help people, um, I was crushed each time I would end up in rejection. And so finally I realized with the help of a great therapist and other spiritual teachings that I had to stop basing my happiness on things outside of my control. And I had to start looking at rejection as simply just something to grow from and to grow through and to not necessarily let it define how I felt about my own well-being and my own ability as a writer. So I had been working with this kind of idea of, of non-resistance and, and non-suffering for, oh, some time before this happened. So I got to apply the same philosophy to a very practical, mundane situation within my marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, so let's talk about this non-suffering, this idea of non-suffering. Uh, what, is, what does that mean in sort of practical terms? I know we can lay that out in a story, but in practical terms, what does that mean? Well, there's so many degrees of suffering, and one thing I've learned is that you know, pain is pain is pain. Um, pain is only relative to the person who's feeling it. Um, and so it's important to pay attention to where you are in pain in your life. And I think for so many of us, um, suffering and pain become our normal. The way that we look at pain, the way we process pain, turns into, you know, state of emergency panic or low-grade fear. But, you know, you can really use pain, and it can be a wonderful guide, and we don't have to assign it really any power other than that. It doesn't need to take us down. It doesn't need to mean that we're wrong. And so uh, I worked a lot during that time, especially with the idea of getting in touch with those negative thoughts that we all have and to exile those thoughts or even, and even better, I think, to love them into submission the way you would, you know, a little child because those thoughts come from us. We create them. They're a part of us. But we don't have to believe that they're true, and we don't really even have to entertain them. <laughs> so I started to get really clear about where I was in my life around negative inner dialogue. And boy, once I started getting aware, I couldn't believe how loud and constant those negative voices were. And so little by little, I just started to create the awareness and then be committed to letting go of that. And in that... I started to see what, what people are talking about when they talk about personal freedom and personal responsibility and letting go and letting the power of the present moment be your, be your guide and finding the freedom therein. Absolutely. You know, you've just said so much there, personal freedom and responsibility. And I want to talk, one of the things I loved most about your book was the fact that, uh, was Sheila, 
there's yeah. a, the, the character of Sheila that is not a real person that is sort of these negative thoughts that come up. You gave them a name, which really, as, as you walk through the book, it tells the story of how these thoughts arise, how we, they can have the power to carry us down if we let them, and how you comp- uh, really not conquered them, but really loved them into submission, as you said. And, and uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we go there, I want to just address the idea that at no time in, this, in the early part of this story did you know what the outcome was going to be. You did not know that your husband wouldn't ultimately say, I'm gone. No, I didn't. I wrote the book in real time. And actually what ended up happening was that I submitted it to my agent. And because it's so hard to get published these days, she suggested that I try to write the short version of it for a column called Modern Love in the New York Times. And the responses to that essay in the New York Times actually crashed the New York Times website because people are so hungry for this kind of message that that they don't have to fight to win and that they can be powerful even when they feel powerless. I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was stunning to me. So the book was actually written in real time. When it says it's 5 a.m. Montana, it was 5 a.m. AM Montana. But it wasn't necessarily a journal. I, I, I deliberately was writing it for myself and my own therapeutic journey. But because I'm a writer, I was also writing it to the reader because I needed a book like that during that time, you know, that that, that wasn't about specific spirituality or specific self-help, you know, bullet-pointed ways to hang on to your man or, you know. I really didn't want to get into that zone. I wanted to know what it was to live in the present moment in surrender, letting go of those negative voices and focusing on what I could own in the present moment and what I could let go of. And then the beauty of it is then, the answer to the question, what can I create? That's where the freedom lies. At least that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, uh, the other thing is that as you were journaling and uh, journeying through this process, it seemed to me as I was reading it that you were tapping into not only uh, the negative uh, thoughts that you had and recognizing and loving them into submission, but also tapping into your intuitive self that you you understood that this was his issue. You did not uh, assume it to be yours or assume it to be about the relationship. You had an inner knowing, it seems. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, we, was... we get into so much trouble with assumptions. And when you hear, I don't love you anymore, the first thing most of us do, or when a publisher rejects your work, or if a, your boss uh, fires you, we hear... We, we, we assume things and then we believe them and we live into them. And, and, you know, we assume things like, well, I must be unworthy or I must have done something to bring this on or I must be wrong or bad. And I think it's important to examine what part of that you have to take responsibility for. You know, it does it take two to tango. And, and how, how have I participated to get us here? And I took a good look at that and took ownership of, of, of what I could. And then after that, really, there's nothing else to do but let go. And intuitively, yes, I felt that this was his own crisis, that he was transferring his own pain brought on by career failure after years of being a, a, the breadwinner in the family um, onto me. That was what my gut said, but still I couldn't, there was this fine line between believing what my gut said, but letting go of, of our relationship ever really healing. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that's a real important piece is, is that you knew that there was the inevitable, inevitable possibility that it might not work. Right. So, yeah, that piece is real important, that detachment piece. 
Yeah, we're going to come back and talk about this some more in just a few minutes. So stay tuned for more from Laura Munson about her wonderful book, her wonderful memoir. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. This holiday season, share the joy of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where consciousness research is helping people lead healthier, happier, and more productive lives. Visit www.noetic.org to discover how to navigate a world transforming. IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, provides audio, video, research, articles, and blogs with leading thinkers to help you on your journey. Go to noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C.org today. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back today talking with Laura Munson about her wonderful book, This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, a memoir uh, about a crisis in her marriage in which she did something quite unusual. Um, what you chose to do, Laura, was to not suffer through this, to, to, uh, to, to recognize what you thought was going on, to go into your intuition and say, yeah, I don't think this is really about me. This is some kind of existential crisis that my husband is having. And, uh, and then make your decision from there. And that is, is not the usual way we handle these things. So, you know, what we were talking during the break about this whole idea about you know, you're definitely not recommending that everyone do what you did because some marriages are meant to end and that you made yourself some rules. So can we talk a little bit about that, how you sort of uh, gave yourself a segment of time to get through this? Yes, I think that's so important. Um, And some people misunderstood that from the short version in the New York Times. I had definite rules. I wasn't going to be a, a doormat Um, I wasn't going to be in denial. And that's why it was so important to enlist the help of 
a, a couple choice friends that supported this sort of philosophy in the first place and who also believed in us, uh, but also not to tell everybody in the world because there are so many people out there that see the payoff in taking that kind of you-have-to-fight-to-win stance, which in my opinion just turns you into really a victim in the long run. Um, but And then if you have the money, and at that point I did, to hire a great therapist uh, is so important, just a skilled professional who can help you see when you are in denial or help you make those rules. So for me, um, I had to, you know, I asked point blank um, the things that you would think I would ask, is there another woman? The answer was no, and I chose to believe him. Um, I could have engaged in the drama by hiring a private detective or, or searching through his cell phone or looking through his emails, but there were no actual signs pointing me toward that. And so to me, that just brought with it more suffering, and, and that's what I was committed to ending in my life. So I gave myself six months, and it wasn't like at the end of those six months, game over, you know, the guillotine came down. Um, we'd been together since 1988. And it took us a long time to create the world that we live in um, with each other. And it, we have, you know, two kids and a life together. And I felt that it seemed wrong to just snap, let go of that in a knee-jerk reaction. I felt instead that it was important to hold the space for him while he went through a hard time. That was part of the worst and for better, for worse. So I take my vow seriously um, again, some marriages are meant to end, and I just instinctively didn't feel like mine was. Of course, if it had ended, I would apply the same sort of philosophy, or if I found out that there was another woman with another family and two kids in Connecticut somewhere, I would hope that I would be able to practice the same sort of finding the freedom and the power of the, of the present moment and letting go of the rest and, and asking yourself again what you can create in that moment. Can you create being miserable or can you create some level of, of empowerment and, and self, self-worth even in those times and preservation? Right, and, and, and the voices are, are many out there, as we said in the beginning, that have the opinion that we should do X, Y, and Z or we shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, and we range between codependency, which has taken on uh, a whole world. It, uh, you know, the joke in my field now is that uh, the the man comes in one day and says to his therapist, "Well, you know, we, I've not, I've conquered codependency. I'm done. I'm, I, I did it." And and the therapist says, "Well, how did that happen? And and what did you do?" And and he said, "Well, my wife had a heart attack, and I refused to take her to the hospital." Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's 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 just loaded that that term. It originally started out to be a codependency with someone who is an addict or an alcoholic who where there's a lot of under, undermining of that of recovery process, unconscious undermining of the recovery process, that is true codependency, I think, but that word is just laden now with everything that you do that's loving for your partner is now codependency. So I am absolutely certain that some people would have looked at your journey and said, oh, she's just codependent, she's just a people pleaser, she's just, 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 and judged you and went on their way and said, that'll never happen in my marriage. Um, but... In fact, you were doing something else internally, and that is, the, as I see it, the name of the game, that, that internal process that is so vital and, and, and was so, um, the way you explored it in your book was so wonderful because you, you, you came to the thought, you, you showed us as the readers what you were thinking and, and how you sort of work through that. So 
if you don't mind, would you give us an example of one of those negative thoughts, uh, the Sheila's, in your life, and, and tell us a little bit about how that, how you uh, loved that into submission. Well, and I have no idea where I came up with Sheila, and I apologize to anybody with that name, <laughs> but I just think it's important to be that deliberate about really identifying those voices. And, you know, before I answer that, I, I think it's important to say that, you know, I also never signed up for the happily ever after myth. You know, when we got married, we uh, at our wedding was read um, an essay by the writer Reiner Maria Rilke, and in it he talked about being guardians of each, of each other's solitude. And in every relationship, whether it's your husband or your wife or your you know your family members or friends or bosses, breakdowns happen and crisis happens. And so I don't know why it's such a surprise to people. And I think it's a shame, especially as women and especially as a feminist, that that. Uh, you know that that you know you, that people feel that they need to be out there uh, fighting all the time and and burning their bras. I think there is a time for that, and there still is a time for that. This felt like a time to draw in and pull my power and hold a space for my husband. And in no way did I ever once feel like a pushover, you know, or or codependent. This was about taking care of myself and going with my gut. And what's more feminist than that, <laughs> you know? Um, yes. And so, in terms of an example of what those voices sound like. It's just the you're bad, you're not good enough. Um, uh, one of the w- wonderful little phrases that I have on my writing desk is, you are enough. It's just such a simple thing, but sometimes we need to reduce it to such a simple thing to remind ourselves uh, the positive things. Sometimes I would lie in bed in the morning and I wouldn't let myself get out of bed until I could come up with one nice thing to say about myself. And you know what? Sometimes it was really hard to come up with that one thing. And it's a great exercise for people to do to start reprogramming our minds into that idea of what can I create and to, and to answer that with something beautiful. So for me, it, when those voices would attack, <laughs> it was about... It was about writing that book. It was about gardening. It was about cooking with my kids. There's a lot of cooking in this book. Um, it was about going outside and taking a walk or sometimes just opening up the window and taking three very mindful, deliberate breaths. And just in those little moments would come this grace that would help me to know that instinctually I was on the right track. Yeah, and, and, and throughout that process, you know, I... I I think that one of the things words that I would use for the process is stillness. You just kept going back to a place it seemed to me of of let me just stand here. Let me just stand here and listen and hear and be and not rush around trying to figure out what I should do being motivated by fear and all that. You had fear, you had hard feelings, you had uh, you know, little worries that would niggle at you and um, the voice of Sheila. And all of that was there. But what you decided to do, it seemed to me, was stillness. Yep. And, you know, there's nothing like a crisis to inspire you to use whatever it is that you practice. And I find that I was really quite good at it then or skilled at it. I don't know if I want to assign the word good to it, but I, I felt like it worked for me. And I'm less good at it now. Um and, and I, so I think that's why pain can be our guide. And um, regarding stillness, I heard from a gentleman yesterday on my website who said, I wish that there was more dialogue in your book because I would love to have heard more of what your husband had to say. And I wrote him back and I said, you know, this wasn't a time of great dialogue. 
in our lives. This was a time of clear communication. I didn't want to engage in the drama, so my, I would express my emotions. I'm not saying to suppress your emotions in any way. I just I, I clearly and cleanly spoke them, and then when they felt like they were getting the best of me, I would go by myself into the woods and scream and cry and rage. Or, you know, my horse hurt a lot of things that summer, <laughs> and my therapist. But it didn't seem like it would be helpful to escalate the situation with my husband by engaging in a lot of dialogue since he's not a big talker in the first place. So I thought that was interesting. A lot of people have wanted to hear from him, but the title of the story, this book, is This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, is because... This is about my journey. Right. This is not a he said, she said. This is not a story ranting, uh, you know, a housewife's rant or a, a writer trying to use poisonous words to vilify her partner at all. Really, it's about just about my journey. And so the entry point is marriage, but really it's about so much more. Yeah, and there's so many little poetic asides in the book, too, about, you know, animals. You talked about your horse uh, and uh, your horse rider and Montana, and you, you know, the, you talked about the horse and how his he he was able to just sort of be in there, be be his animal self. And I can't remember exactly how you said that, but it was it was beautifully done. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about that whole idea of stillness. That you know, I I look at a tree and I think, well, it's just standing there, it never moves, it never it never gets to travel, it just stands there all the time. Wouldn't wouldn't that be boring? And then I think, but its its joy is in its rootedness and in and in what it's doing and its beingness. And so when I think about that tree as a metaphor for me, as I meditate to sort of just be settled into my roots and hear what's there, and not be all about what's going on all around me, but just be in myself. And and I I think that that thing is so true. You said very well that we don't. You don't want to suppress or repress emotions, and and I I agree with you. They definitely have messages to give us, and whether those messages are true or false, they do have messages to give us, and we need to hear the message so that we can, so we can uh, love them into in, into submission and even into intentionality. So you know the 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 story that you tell there about non-suffering, about the decision to 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 not suffer, does not include lack of pain. That's right. It's using the pain or even uh, translating it into something that's not dangerous, but that's something that's actually helpful. I had a woman, there's a part in the book that when I do my readings that I, where I say, we all want to be free, don't we? And I look around the room and I kind of force myself to pause and take a couple breaths and look into people's eyes and, and people kind of shut down. Um, because that sounds like a tall order. And there's always a couple people who are just staring right at me, and they usually come up afterwards and we talk, and it's always the people who have known really intense pain, like the loss of a child. Again, you can't qualify pain, but they have used whatever pain it is in their life. They've been to the abyss. They've seen that they could be completely taken down by an event in their lives, and they've chosen to look at it. As, as, as a gift, and I have a lot to learn from those people, and I, I hope that that's what I'm sort of trying to practice and teach in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in using pain, uh, what you're not saying, again, I want to repeat this, we're, we're not, you're not saying don't feel pain. Right. You're saying turn pain into an opportunity to grow. That's right. Okay, wonderful. All right, well, we're going to be back in just a few more minutes with more from Laura Munson about her, her wonderful memoir, 
call. This is not the story you think it is. Stay tuned. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. This holiday season, share the joy of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where consciousness research is helping people lead healthier, happier, and more productive lives. Visit www.noetic.org to discover how to navigate a world transforming. IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, provides audio, video, research, articles, and blogs with leading thinkers to help you on your journey. Go to noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C.org today. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. The Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research education and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C.org. And we're talking today with Laura Munson about her wonderful memoir called This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, A Season of, what is it, Unusual Happiness? I don't, I didn't. Unlikely. Unlikely happiness, yes. (laughs) Very much unlikely, yes. We don't think of crisis as a season of happiness, do we? No, and I don't even mean, you know, when I say happiness, uh, I don't mean, you know, blissed out happiness, Walt Disney happiness. Sometimes happiness is just one small step outside of suffering, and we can call it good. (laughs) Absolutely. And is there some element of peace there, you think? Yes, and, you you know, I've always studied wisdom texts, and and, um, I've 
always been a seeker. And in fact, at the very beginning of the book, I give the list of books on my bedside table at the time, and they reflect a broad array of different teachings. And at that time in my life, I was very open to anything that would, <laughs> that would give me some level of understanding of what, what, what is this thing called inner peace? Is it something that we can only achieve when we're taking, you know, a meditative walk in the woods or going to church or in an ashram in India, you know, can this happen at the kitchen sink? Can this, can this be our reality driving carpool with, you know, 14-year-old soccer players in the back uh, texting on their cell phones? <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the things that's been a real blessing for me in this whole experience is that I've heard from people from almost every faith space um, and, and agnostics and atheists and people from all over the world saying, Thank you for, this is a message that, that you can plug into any or no religion. Um, it's really a universal message. And, and so I was very careful to be inclusive and not exclusive. So I've heard from ministers, and I've heard from Buddhists, and I've heard from Muslims. Um, I've heard from married people, unmarried. My, my favorite comment I've gotten, gotten was from a woman in Israel. She had heard about my my book, and she downloaded it and listened to it, and she wrote and said, I'm a blind woman, and I've never been married, and I listened to your book over the weekend, and it got me through the greatest loss I've ever had, and that was the death of my seeing eye dog to cancer. And I thought, wow, that is the power of being vulnerable on the page. That's the power of trying to practice something, even though you're not good at it sometimes, that is so universal. It's really just about what every human being, it's possible for anybody, whether you're in a jail or in war, I've heard from lots of soldiers, or if you're a housewife like I am, <laughs> or out on book tour, you know, or going on TV, it's just what is there right now in this moment? And that's when the fear goes away, and that's when the destructive voices go away, and that's when you do find that peacefulness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, that whole idea of suffering it is... It's not that we don't have real crises in our lives, but a big part of suffering is how we interpret those crises. Isn't that true? Yeah, I mean, it's just our, our it's just like beauty. It's in, you know, pain can be in the eye of the beholder, just like beauty. It's how we assign power to it. You can take two people who experience the same event, and one can walk away suffering, and one person can walk away feeling peacefulness. So it is really how we assign power to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and if it means something about me, it can be interpreted to mean that I'm bad or I deserve this or I, you know, I did something wrong or I failed or all kinds of things, then we then we pull it into our identity and it just, you know, really can do a number on us. It snowballs and then it becomes our reality. We li- we tell ourselves one of the things that I I learned a lot that summer was to pay attention to the stories that we tell ourselves because most of them are lies. Mm -hmm. And we do them, and I've really examined this because I've had the pleasure of speaking to so many people now, and I keep getting the same questions over and over again. And why would we want to stay in the victim place? Why would we allow ourselves that low-grade or high-grade suffering when we can choose a different way? What is the payoff? And the only thing I can come up with is that we get to be right. So if we've told ourselves that story, 
that see we're unlovable or see we'll never get a book published or see, you know what, men are going to just leave me in the end anyway or whatever it is that we tell ourselves. You know, I'm unemployable or, um, then, then we, then when we live into it and it happens, then we get to be right. And I think that's the payoff. And to tell you the truth, I got really sick of that payoff. It, that wasn't paying off enough for me anymore. Yeah, it doesn't. And it, and it not only makes us right, but it makes the whole world right because the whole world says we suffer and that's the way it is. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, another, another quote I love, um, and this one's by Rumi, is out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Mm-hmm. And that field is where I want to be, and that field is where I was that summer. Not all the time. Again, I mean, the book is full of me throwing total tantrums, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not professing to be superhuman. I'm not professing to be any kind of real teacher or guru or anything. I'm just a person who tried to apply that philosophy that I'd already been working with into a practical life situation. Yeah, and I love what you said about putting your vulnerability on the page. It's not only on the page, but it's in your life. We, we, we yeah, And you... you one of the things that strikes people about good poetry or good uh, a good novel or a good uh, memoir or anything like that is they can relate to it, and, and the reason they can relate to it is because it opens up the vulnerable parts of the person that's the writer or, or the story or whatever. It opens up vulnerability, and that's one of the things that I find to be so strong about vulnerability that, you know, everybody says, well, I don't want to be... I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want those things. You can't, you got to keep, you know, your guard up so no, nobody gets to see that because they'll hurt you if they get a chance. But the truth is that that's how we relate. We connect to each other at that level and we connect to ourselves at that level. Yes, and, and I think that's why memoir is so hot right now as a genre because people are in a lot of pain right now with, with uh, the economy being what it is globally. A lot of people are out of work. It's, it's affecting a lot of people's relationships. And so people want to hear from the trenches. I have an author's statement, and this is also in the book, that says, I write to shine a light on a dim or otherwise pitch black corner to provide relief for myself and others. And so while I normally write fiction, and I do hope that some of my novels will get published now, um, uh, because I think it's really fun to climb into a person's life that's totally different than mine and create that trajectory of empathy that can happen when you try on somebody else's shoes for size as a writer, and then hopefully that will resonate for the reader. But there are times, I do believe, when people want to know that that main character exists in real life. Mm-hmm. And uh, this felt like one of those times. Um, but I, you know, I don't... <laughs> I told my husband, um, let's not have a sequel to this. <laughs> really? <laughs> let's not have a sequel, honey. No, want a sequel. And that's, you know, I, I should make sure that, you know, that is the number one question I get asked. I usually just ask it for people because they, they're wondering, what does he think about this? Mm-hmm. And I, I check in with him about this all the time. And, you know, he gets thank you letters almost daily uh, for for being willing to to also uh, be vulnerable and to have his story on the page and and people say thank you um, and I think he's proud that he you know he could when I said uh, what can we do to give you the distance that you need without taking on the family he could said nothing and he could have walked out the door but he chose to stay and to work through it and so I feel like he in no way is a villain in the book I feel like he's a sympathetic hero. 
Absolutely he is. And and, and the thing that I, I liked was that not only did you see the kind of curmudgeon there, but you also saw him struggling. You could clearly see that he was in his own personal struggle with sort of bouncing around between his own emotions about what was true and what was false. And, and uh, that, that was very well done. I thought you wrote that very well. Thank you. That is very tricky. And believe me, I was very concerned about it because I, I care about my reader, but I care about my loved ones the most. And uh, so writing memoir is very tricky, but I feel, like while we're talking about vulnerability, I think that if you write with compassion and responsibility, you can write about anything. Mm-hmm. And I've had very few negative reviews or I, I, nobody has written me anything negative. Some people have said negative things on the Internet, and I try not to look at that using the same philosophy. But, for instance, on my blog, which I write every day and I respond to people, there's so much gratitude out there for honesty and rawness and people who are being raw and real but also responsible and saying, I'm not playing the victim card here. I, you know, this is, this is not a situation that I would choose but I'm going to try to find some light in this. People are, are starving for that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we've reached this level of understanding since we communicate so easily now that, that we're, we're, we're trying to find what's real inside of us and not just outside of us. But, and you're right, the, cri- the cur- particular crisis we're in sort of globally right now is, is a financial crisis, and it does have an impact. What it does, as any other crisis does, is... R- bring to the surface all the stuff that's already been in there, and it gives us an opportunity to work with that stuff, even though we don't want to. It certainly provides us that opportunity. Right. There's a great way of looking at it, like an opportunity. Yep. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and as a therapist, you know, I, I think that, that that is the deal, that every time someone is in crisis, that they're being presented an opportunity to get to know themselves better on another deeper level and, and even come out of it more authentic and more happy. Yeah. So we'll be back in just a few minutes with uh, our final segment with Laura Munson talking about her wonderful memoir entitled, This is Not the Book That You Think It Is. This is not the story you think it is. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. This holiday season, share the joy of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where consciousness research is helping people lead healthier, happier, and more productive lives. Visit www.noetic.org to discover how to navigate a world transforming. IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, provides audio, video, research, articles, and blogs with leading thinkers to help you on your journey. Go to noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C.org today. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Mom! My tooth fell out! The coach says I can play shortstop! I get to be 
a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life. But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Well, it's sad but true that we are in our final segment with uh, Laura Munson uh, talking about her book, This Is Not the Story You Think It Is. Uh, we, If you could hear us behind the scenes while the commercials are going on, you'd know that we're having this chattering, wonderful conversation that I've really enjoyed. <laughs> Me and, uh, too. <laughs> so we could go on for hours and hours, I think. But uh, we, we really want to, uh, I want to give the uh, listeners an opportunity to sort of connect with you and your work. So can you tell us about your website and how reader, uh, listeners might be able to connect with you. Sure. Um, it is lauramunsonauthor.com for now. Uh, Laura, L-A-U-R-A, Munson, M-U-N-S-O-N, author.com. And then I also have a blog, which you can get to from my website or just directly, and that's called These Here Hills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's um, it's actually lauramunson.wordpress.com. Um, but in These Here Hills, it's all about what we were just talking about, Andrea. It's all about a safe haven for people to stop by and share a little bit and and to feel that kind of haven of of Montana that that is the stillness of trees and right now if you could see where I am standing the snow is gently falling there's about five feet of snow on my roof <laughs> and the Christmas lights are still out on the on the garden wall and it's 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 all about solitude and quiet and big sky and so I bring that into um, my writing life because I think we can learn a lot by being quiet and, and being generous with one another. So I moderate all the comments, and no one's ever written a nasty thing in there. <laughs> Good. Good. You know, I, it, one of the things that I was real impressed by with your book was the fact that not only is this a journey about your relationship and how how you decided not to suffer there, but it, it, there's several places in your book that, that touch on the idea of acceptance and, and sort of how we get to that place of acceptance, which I think ultimately is where we're going with just about any crisis. And, and you know, you originally didn't want to move to Montana, and then you moved to Montana, and now you love Montana. Mm-hmm. You, you weren't you weren't um, getting published, although you were having articles published. You weren't getting your books published, and and uh, then you wrote this book, and without necessarily the knowledge that it would be published, but just writing it, and then it became published and is a bestseller. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It is. And, <laughs> you know, and then the crisis with your husband as well, and uh, there was another one in there, too, that I, I thought, I, but I can't remember it right now, but there were several no, uh, mentions of 
something that I would call acceptance, where you just kind of go, okay, I'm going to go with this and see what happens, and then you go with it, and it turns out to be something wonderful after all. Well, one of the um, one of the things I bet this is what it was. Did it, did it have to do with Italy? Maybe. Yes, yes, it was Italy. Yes. So okay, so once I real once the therapist that I had hired said to me, um, you do realize that when you when you believe that things outside of your control bring you happiness or determine your state of personal and emotional well being, that that really is insanity. And you know when somebody says it to you in just that one way, finally you get that light bulb. <laughs> and and I realized it's true. I've got to stop letting things outside of my control to find my happiness. Now this was before my marital crisis. And so I thought, you know, I can't control having the publishers accept my book. I had gotten almost all the way with two very big New York Times, New York um, editors. Uh, and only to have it crumble in the end uh, with two different books. And I realized what I can control is the I can control the writing. I can go into that writing cave and see all the shiny petroglyphs and hieroglyphs and <laughs> stalagmites and stalagmites. Sorry, I'm getting yeah. waiting. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and then after that, I can control submitting it. And then after that, I have to let go of it. And the one thing that I realized that was a dream that I'd been dreaming for as many years as wanting to be a published author was to go back to Italy where I had lived my junior year in college with this amazing family and to bring my daughter there because she was dying to go. And I realized that I had enough frequent flyer miles to fly us over, that they would take care of us and host us, and that there was absolutely no reason why I wasn't creating that possibility for myself. So I... I booked it and we went. And I think so many of us have our, our Italy, you know, that thing that we hold outside of ourselves like a carrot in front of us that is within our control that we don't grant ourselves because, again, there's that payoff of self-deprivation. We get to be under the thumb of something. We get to be victimized by something. So I would encourage people to really look at that. You know, what is it in your life that you can control that is – you know, is it an instrument that you want to learn or a language you want to learn? Just think if you practice five minutes a day, you'd know how to do that. It's how we get in our own way. Right. And I think that's a big part of what, what I'm trying to write about and trying to live into in my own life. How do we get in our own way? And how do we get out of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that w- is clear is that when other people's options for your life become apparent to you because they tell you or they, you know, insist that you do it their way or whatever, That's that might be the time to step back into ourselves and, and decide when we're going to listen, what we really agree with and what we don't, what's really true for us and what's really false for us. And that's the big part, of, the biggest part, I think, of sorting is what's true for me, not what do you want from me or what does what the world want from me or what would be judged best, make me look good or whatever, but what's really true for me? And usually it's not very hard to see. Mm-hmm. That, that's what, uh, the, the way, <laughs> I forget who said this, but it's something like, uh, you know, it's a simple philosophy, but it's, it's not an easy, the way is not easy. But, you know, the truth is, is it can be easy once we start learning how to, uh, well, to use a therapy term, unpack things, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think the awareness of the self-destructive voice and then the commitment to getting rid of it and to start living into the power of what you can create, that, the, those little 
changes you can make in your life suddenly find you having your dreams come true. And that is interesting to me that I wrote a book with no real intention of getting published, although I felt that there was power in it. Completely wrote in, it, it in surrender, and that's what ends up on the New York Times bestseller list. I, I was shocked. <laughs> you really, <laughs> I wish I could do that again. I don't quite know how to do that again. You just have to write what you have to write and live the way you have to live. Right, exactly, and 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 just following what's true, what that truest path. I don't know that there is a singular, absolute truth to anything, but the truest path that you can uh, you can follow, and that for you it was some kind of stillness in this waiting while you were just kind of okay, let go of suffering and see what happens. That's right. Very sounds very simple. I mean, really, it is simple. Yeah. Yeah, that we'll see. I have I've developed that those two words in my life, and they mean a whole lot to me when I say them. I don't necessarily say them lightly, although they could be heard lightly. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. I I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see. And when we're there, we'll we'll be there. But right now, I'm here. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I like that. I'm going to yeah. use that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and certainly recognizing that somebody else has a choice, which you had to recognize in, in working with your husband or not, you know, letting that go. Uh, he had a choice, and he made his own choices, and it turned out that the choices he made were to just do so, a little bit maybe of self-examination himself and come to terms with something a little bit more true for him, and that was sort of a reflection of what you were doing. Well, I think that it's interesting when you get out of... I mean, what I did was I got out of his way, too. Mm-hmm. And what a great, you know, testament to what happened, what can happen when you do that with somebody you love because he didn't have anything... Uh, he didn't have any noise from me, in other words. You know, he, he, he fully had the space around him to work with his whatever pain he was in mm-hmm. and heal through it. And he chose to do that. You know, and, and so for the people out there who have been through a divorce or, you know, who, who did hold that space for their partner and they still ended up in divorce or, or there were unforgivable, you know, issues, um, I still think that there's something in this message for everybody because this, is, again, is, is not about holding on. It's about letting go. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and if I have imagined this actually as a new, another ending for you, the story, that if, in fact, he had decided that, no, I'm not going to stay married to you, that you would have carried on with the decision not to suffer, and, and a whole other story would have come out of that. But it still would have been the same decision. That's right. It wasn't contingent upon, upon the result. It was more about the act of creating. And, and I, you know, my favorite thing I hear from people is, no offense, but I kind of didn't care how the story ended for you guys. <laughs> I, th- I think your marriage after. Thank all. you. Right, I love that because to me that means the story was successful in the telling of it because it's really about my journey. Yes, your journey, absolutely, and that's why it's not your story is not the same as everybody else's story, but the message is applicable. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and and internationally, as you've seen. Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Laura, for being on the show. I'm sure that our listeners have really benefited from what you've had to say today. And go get the book. If you haven't read it, go get it, read it. Don't stop reading it till you're done. It is a wonderful book. Thank and you. 
next week we're going to be talking about not body-mind, but body-soul, your body as the physical organ of the soul. You don't want to miss this fascinating conversation between body and soul. So stay tuned for that. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.